So today we are in John's Gospel, the end of John chapter 3, and so I'd encourage you to be turning there. One of the topics that is uh, brought up repeatedly in John's Gospel is the, the question of truth. What is truth? Where does truth come from? It's relevant to our day and age as well. This is a question that you'll hear out there in society. Um, you know, back prior to what they call postmodernism, it, it was understood that truth was whatever the authority says is true. And actually, that's pretty intuitive. That's kind of how we raise our children, right? How many of you have ever said to your children, because I said so? Come on. Let's have some truth right here today. All right, okay. The rest of you are either not paying attention or you're not willing to, to speak the truth today by raising that hand. So we've probably all been, been uh, guilty of, of saying to our kids, because I say so, well, that's a, a way of, of saying the, the authority figure is the source of truth. That's actually a really super good way to raise your kids, right? When they are growing and learning, you want them to depend upon you as the parent uh, to help them understand right from wrong, true from false, and so what the authority says is true is one understanding of truth. Now, uh, during the Enlightenment era, the, the definition of truth somewhat changed to the idea that truth is what can be scientifically proven. It's what you can recreate. It's what you can hypothesize. It's what you can apply the scientific method to. There's still a lot of that understanding of truth alive today. And that's one of the reasons that people today will discount belief in God. Well, I can't study God under a microscope. I can't look at God in a beaker. I can't recreate God in a science laboratory. Therefore, God does not exist. And so it's almost elevating science to the level of a God and saying that science is the filter through which truth is perceived. Not what the authority figure says because authority figures can make statements in a manip manipulative way. So let's keep it detached and objective. Let's look at it in a science lab. Well, I think the, the best phrase to capture what people perceive of truth today is actually here in John's Gospel from later in, in John's Gospel in chapter 18 as Jesus is talking with a man named Pilate. And there in John 18, Pilate asked Jesus a question. He says, so you are a king? And Jesus answers Pilate by saying, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said the phrase that I think would really fit our culture today. What is truth? What is truth? That's, that's the question that we hear in our culture today, disenchanted with the idea of truth as what the authority figure says it is, skeptical of science as being able to reveal what truth really is. Really, our culture today is asking that question, what is truth? And there's been various answers proposed. The most recent one is that truth is just within you. It's not what the authority figure says. It's not what science says. What's true for you may not be true for me. Truth is however you define it. Your version of truth is equal and valid to my own. Your truth and my truth, that idea that truth is actually not external, it's not objective, it's something intrinsic and subjective, it's something within each one of us, and then we just have to tell each other what we perceive to be true, and then we have to validate and affirm one another. Well, in, in all of these 
different views of what truth is. Today we're going to meet the one who says of himself in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's how we got the name of our church, right? It's on the front of your bulletin, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we're going we're gonna to hear that theme here in John chapter 3 as we read the second part of John 3 beginning in verse 22. It starts this way, after this, after this, well, after what? Well, you'd have to go back and read the beginning of John 3 as we did a few weeks ago before we entered the Easter season. The beginning of John 3 is a conversation between Jesus and a religious leader named Nicodemus. And there's a whole conversation that includes that verse that most of America has seen held up on a cardboard sign at a sporting event. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And part of that conversation with Nicodemus was a discussion about the need to have a new birth in order to see God's kingdom. A need to be born of water and of the spirit to enter God's kingdom. A really personal one-on-one conversation as Jesus looked this religious leader in the eyeballs and said, you can't achieve God's kingdom on your own. You need help from God himself. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. The, the, this is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what the Gospels are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four guys taking pen to paper and writing down their eyewitness account of what Jesus did, who Jesus was, what Jesus taught, the miracles that Jesus performed as he ushers in his kingdom, proclaiming that with both word and deed. And he's given us some time frame here. This is before John the Baptist went to prison. And there's this baptism event happening out there in Judea. Jesus and his disciples involved in baptism. We get a little more detail uh, there in chapter 4 if you skip ahead. Uh, chapter 4 verse 2 says, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples are there. His disciples are the ones conducting the baptism. We're going to see here, baptism is not what's really in focus. It's really a contrast between Jesus and John the Baptist. And there's, there's going to be some uh, questioning by John's disciples over the validity of his ministry versus Jesus. Kind of pitting these two guys against one another in competition. That's really what's in focus here in, at the end of John chapter 3. And so we, we've heard here uh, in the conversation with Nicodemus a discussion of the need for new birth, the need for this birth of water and the Spirit, the fact that God sent his Son because of love. And now Jesus is there beginning this ministry and there's people that are coming to him and they're being baptized as that initiation, that rite of passage, that first step of being disciples and following after him. And in the midst of all this good thing that's happening of Jesus' ministry beginning. Look at verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples, John the Baptist, and a Jew over purification. 
Okay, so, so John the Baptist has also been baptizing. He's been initiating people into this purification ritual as a part of Judaism. He's the one who baptized Jesus himself. And in the context of this, there's a debate, a dialogue, a conversation happening about the Jewish rite of purification. This is, uh, again, repeating themes that we've seen earlier in John's Gospel where Jesus comes and fulfills all that Judaism had expected, where Jesus comes and takes a step above all of the Jewish expectation. It's not just personal salvation. It's the whole big kahuna picture of what salvation expectations were for God's people. Freedom from exile, forgiveness of sin, a Davidic king back on the throne in Jerusalem, the one true creator God worshipped as he is. And Jesus is fulfilling all of that expectation. And so once again, just as we saw at the wedding in Cana, do you remember when Jesus turned water into wine? Do you remember the the jars that held the water, what they were? Those were jars that held water for Jewish purification. And Jesus said, guess what? There's a party starting today. And he turned that water into wine and there was celebration that continued on as this wedding Uh, literally a wedding between a man and a woman, but also metaphorically ushering in the groom with his bride, faithful Israel, the remnant of those who really follow the one true God. That party is getting started. And Jesus fulfilled Jewish expectation and took a step beyond that. Then, then there also in chapter 2, there's the, the episode of Jesus cleansing the temple. The temple, the place where the Jewish people worshipped God, right? But Jesus shows up that day and they've turned it into a marketplace. And he starts flipping over tables and he shows some anger and some emotion that day. And he speaks some prophetic words about the temple being destroyed and then rebuilt three days later. And Jesus is saying all of this expectation that you have placed within this building It's all achieved and then superseded. Worship of God is going to happen not just in these four walls, but it's going to go out to every corner of the earth. It's going to exceed anything you've ever expected or hoped for. And even that uh, conversation with Nicodemus, again, it's Judaism plus. So, you know, you know about natural birth, but now I'm going to tell you about a birth from above, a water and spirit birth. The, the prophecy that Ezekiel had spoken of, of God bringing this purification, of God making his people right and cleansing them, that's happening right now in your day. Remember the serpent back in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, as God's people were under the wrath of God because of their sin. And God provided that bronze serpent that when you looked at it, God's wrath would be removed and you'd be cleansed and healed in John 3 earlier in the conversation with Nicodemus Jesus says like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up and there's cleansing that's happening today Judaism's expectations fulfilled and exceeded and that's happening once again here in this story there's a discussion a conversation with a Jew about purification and the only one who brings the cleansing is here on the scene, baptizing. But John's disciples don't get it. They're seeing this as a competition between John the Baptist and Jesus. 
And so they try to get uh, their, their question answered here in verse 26. Listen to their question. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Bit of an exaggeration there. John the Baptist is also still baptizing, but in their exaggerated statement, they're saying everybody's going over with Jesus. You know, and, and just their question, it, it appears kind of neutral, kind of benign. It's in John's response that you really see what was the heart behind the question. You know, because actually they're asking him implicitly, John the Baptist, isn't Jesus a threat to you? I mean, John the Baptist, you're important. People should notice you. They should see your ministry and validate and affirm you. They should recognize that you are John the Baptist. You've got a title. But no, this other guy, this guy that you bore witness to, he came after you. Everybody's going out and getting baptized by him. What's up with that? And so you get a glimpse into the heart of John's disciples. And yet, John's heart is in the right place. And in John's response, we get a picture of that contentment that only comes in lifting God's sovereignty up above all else and then seeing your role and function within that proper perspective. You know, it's so easy to have that heart of John's disciples in our lives as well, right? You know, I want to be somebody important. I want to be recognized. I want to make a name for myself. I want fame, popularity, success. But that's a, a trap and a lie that will never bring fulfillment. And if you doubt that statement, just next time you're going through the checkout aisle at Costco, read any one of the National Enquirer magazines, one of these tabloids, right? It's story after story of famous, powerful, influential, wealthy people whose lives are a train wreck. And there's no lasting joy or contentment down this line of thinking. And so John the Baptist responds to this question by his disciples with the confidence and the joy that comes in lifting Jesus high. And he says this, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He begins with a recognition of God's sovereignty. So there is one king, and it's not me. There's one God, and it ain't you. And as long as we get that in the proper perspective, all of a sudden, truth starts to click and life starts to make sense. And you see Jesus for who he is and we see ourselves for who we are. And John says there's nothing that we receive except that which is given by God. All authority is delegated. It's actually his authority. He just gets you to have he allows you to have a little corner of that, a little piece of that. Any provision you have, it's not because you work so hard and you're so cool. It's because he gave it to you. He owns everything. It all belongs to him. When we begin to see that reality, that's the beginning of understanding truth and really arriving at a place of contentment. And John is looking even at himself and saying, you know, my role as the one who Make straight the way of the Lord as a voice crying in the wilderness. That, that's enough. That's what God has for my life and I'm content to live there and point the way to him and glorify him and exalt him. And that role, that position, that status 
is not mine to grasp, to achieve, to strive for, but that's something that's given to me by God, the ultimate authority. So he begins there, a recognition of God's authority. Then he continues on in verse 28. You yourselves, my disciples, John the Baptist speaking to his disciples, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John knew his function. He knew his role. He was content in that. There's a great author, my friend, Jeremiah Burroughs, He's been dead for 400 years, but still, he's a great guy. I, I call him my friend because I love his heart. And he's, you want to get this, the Puritan paperback version of Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I recommend that you read it. Maybe you've never read a book from the 1600s. It's good for your soul. This is a Puritan preacher from England, and he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. What he wrote in the 1600s is still true in the 2000s. It's a rare jewel to have Christian contentment. Most of us are always in this dissatisfied place, like John's disciples were. I mean, these are guys who love the Lord. They know God. I mean, they're, even, they're excited that Jesus is on the scene, and yet there's still this discontentment and this comparing and competing. And yet John really exemplifies what Jeremiah Burroughs wrote about, that there's a, a jewel and a treasure of just being content in whatever circumstance you're in, trusting in God's sovereignty, focusing on his glory, not our own. And John was content with it. I am not the Messiah. You've heard me say it before. Let me reiterate it to you. I'm content in the role that I have. I'm not aspiring to be God's messenger, the king. No, I I have a role as one who prepares the way of the Messiah. I've been sent before him. And he illustrates it like this in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And John is saying, I'm the best man. I'm not the groom. Guys, don't don't try to put me in some competition with the groom. I am celebrating the fact that the groom is here for his bride. And in the Old Testament, the bride of God repeatedly is the faithful remnant of God's people, Israel. You know, there's those of Israel who are not faithful to fulfill their call to receive a blessing from God and then be a blessing through which all the kingdoms of the earth are blessed as they see them living in covenant faithfulness with God. But there is a remnant, the, the remainder, the few, the proud, the brave, who continue in their task of honoring God and glorifying him and being light in the world. And now that theme is carried into the New Testament as well. Uh, look at Ephesians 5. You know, there's instructions to husbands and wives there. And that imagery of the bride of Christ is present. That's the way we're to love our brides, dads, husbands in the room here, men. We're called to love our brides as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so there's a remnant of the faithful here today right in this room 
Those who acknowledge God for who he is, lift his name up on high, see him as the sovereign king that he is, see ourselves in the right place, we're called the bride of Christ. And John's saying, I rejoice when the groom is united with the bride, and that's happening right now. I don't want to be the groom. I, I am very satisfied and happy to be the best man in this story. And really, he sums it up here in verse 30, one of my favorite scripture verses. He must increase, but I must decrease. How do you think that statement aligns with what we call the American dream? Do you see some disconnect? Really, the American dream is I must increase. I must increase in my power, in my wealth, in my influence, in my popularity. I must increase. That's the truth that our culture, truth, that our culture holds out to us. That's the path to lasting joy is by you increasing. But John has discovered an entirely different joy that lasts. He says, he says right prior to this, this joy of mine is now complete. He's talking about a kind of joy that doesn't fluctuate based on whatever is happening today in your life. Now, you know, it's actually not joy when, you know, something good happens to you and you feel happy about that. That's just kind of natural life, right? That, that, maybe, maybe that's happiness. It depends on circumstances. So when you're sick, you're miserable. When you win the lottery, you're happy. When you're pulling the petals off the flower, he loves me, then you're happy. He loves me, not not happy. But joy is something deeper. Joy sticks with you when you're rotting in a prison cell about to be beheaded. That's the end of John's story. Joy is still with you in that prison cell when you're on death row. Joy focuses on his greater glory, his supremacy, his increase. And really then, you and I fade to the background. And that's the secret to joy that John has discovered, that only Jesus brings lasting joy. Let me encourage you today. Maybe you're going through one of those roller coasters of life where you're in the valley, and it's been hard to have joy. And you've struggled with maybe depression, sadness, Loneliness, discouragement, stress. And you're there in, in, the, in the pit of despair saying, how do I get out of this? What's the next thing I can do? How can I change these emotions around? Let me encourage you to learn from the example of John the Baptist. Take your eyes off yourself. Lift your eyes to see Jesus. Forget about self-glory. It, it, it will lead to emptiness. And instead, pursue his glory above all else. Set aside your will, your desires, your decisions that you've made. And instead, grab a hold of God's good, perfect, and pleasing will. And find your contentment in Jesus. That's the only source of the joy that John describes here. A joy that is complete. A joy that remains. He continues on in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. 
He who speaks of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Again, this echoes some of the conversation Jesus just had with Nicodemus. He reprimands Nicodemus a bit. Nicodemus, aren't you supposedly one of the spiritual leaders? And I'm speaking to you in earthly ways. You don't even understand the earthly ways. If I was going to talk to you about heavenly things, you'd have no possibility of understanding what I'm talking about. And there's a reprimand to Nicodemus saying, Nicodemus, you're not even accepting the fact that I'm standing here talking to you today. How can you possibly understand things that pertain to God's kingdom and his plans in this world? Maybe you've had this frustration with someone that you've been trying to share the good news with, the gospel of Jesus. And you get hung up at the very beginning of saying, there is a God. I, I, I question that. That might be your truth. Okay, um, well, uh, God loves you. He sent his son Jesus. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm not sure that Jesus ever existed. God has spoken to us by his word and told us what our life is all about and his plans for us. Yeah, you know, you got your book, I got mine. And you feel like, man, if we can't even agree on earthly things, how can I possibly talk to you about heavenly things? Anybody ever had that frustration? We live in a skeptical world. We've got a lot of people like Pilate running around saying, what is truth? I think there's hope and joy in, in what we've already read. You can't receive a single thing unless it's given to you from heaven. When you encounter someone who is that obtuse that they won't even agree with you on earthly things like the historical existence of a man named Jesus documented here and in other historical documents, pray for them. Pray that God will open the eyes of their understanding, that God will soften their hearts, that God's spirit will draw them to that place of receiving the truth. And then after that, they'll be open to hearing the heavenly things of God's redemption plan and how it affects them. His plan to change their hearts, to transform them, to remove their sin. The power of the shed blood of Jesus to transform and to make them new. The only way you're going to hear about heavenly things, John the Baptist says, is if there's someone from above who reveals it to you. So he who comes from heaven is above all. He, pointing across to Jesus, who's over there baptizing with the disciples, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. It's, it, that's a bleak picture. There is some good news coming. But even though God himself steps into our world, Emmanuel, God with us, there's still a lot of people who love the darkness rather than the light. There's a group of people who are bound and determined to put Jesus to death because he's a threat to their power structures. And John's aware of these realities. He's saying this is the only way we're going to know about God and his kingdom and his plans because Jesus is from there and he can speak with definitive truth about the things of God. We need to pay attention and listen and yet the sad reality is that no one receives his testimony but whoever receives, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. 
It's as if no one receives, but whoever does. So there, there is this remnant faithful, once again, the bride, those with eyes to see, those with ears to hear. And for that category of people, I pray that you are there today, that you're among those who receive. And if you do, you set your seal. You stake your claim on this. You go to the witness stand and you testify. God is true. That first version of truth actually was the closest to the truth. Truth is what the authority figure says, but it's not your mom or your dad or your pastor or your teacher or your president. The authority figure is the supreme creator, God. And what he says is true. It's not what you decide you think is true. It's not, what I, it's not my version of truth. You're, it's not something you could put in a beaker in a science lab or look under a magnifying glass. There is one source of truth, and he has stepped into our world in the person of Jesus. Set your seal on that. Be confident in that, that only Jesus brings real life. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus had a conversation that we read last week on Easter Sunday. Skip ahead to to John chapter 20. One of the disciples was not there when Jesus appeared after the resurrection. We've given him a, a nickname now. We call him Doubting Thomas. Right? He says, unless I see for myself, unless I put my fingers in the holes, I won't believe. And a week later, Jesus kind of lets him sit in that place of disbelief. His version of truth, you know, I, basically Thomas is saying, I need to prove it in a science lab. I need to experientially validate and affirm what is true. And then Jesus says this, you know, is it because you see that you believe? Blessed are those who do not see and have believed. And it's like Jesus is flipping that whole phrase that seems like common sense to you and I, flipping it on its head and saying, actually, believing is seeing. It's when you believe and put faith in that your eyes are actually opened. It's when you set your seal on the fact that God is true that you really see God sent his son Jesus as the word of God. We saw that in the beginning of John, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. He was with God on that first day of creation. And he's come into our world to reveal who God is. He, give, he gives the spirit without measure. John himself testified that God spoke to him and said, the one that you see my spirit descend on and remain, that's the Son of God. Pay attention, John. And Jesus has received God's Spirit without measure. That's the one who reveals God to us. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. There's love that has existed since before time began for us between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that love is reflected in Jesus in the authority that God gives him. He's given everything into his hand. He's the king. 
Finally, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's two options. There's either genuine faith in Jesus or there's rebellion and disobedience. We heard this earlier again in verse 18 of chapter 3 as Jesus spoke with Nicodemus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You know, there are times that we try to Americanize, optimize, clean up the gospel message by only sharing the good news part of the story. God loves you. You can have a better life. You can be fulfilled. You can find contentment. You can find joy. You can be forgiven. You can have hope. There is a bad news part to the story, and we're doing people a disservice if we look over that because they won't really hear the good news as good news unless they understand the bad news. There's words here in John 3 about condemnation, And about the wrath of God. That's bad news. You know, if you have a doctor's appointment this week and they try to give you the good news about the treatment without speaking of the disease at all, it's not going to sound like good news, right? We've got some chemotherapy for you. We've got some antibiotics that you get to take. And you're like, none of that sounds good at all. What what are you talking about? Oh, by the way, you're going to die? Oh, really? But... We've got some antibiotics for you. We've got some chemotherapy. Oh, now it's good news. Once you know the bad news. The bad news is that in our sin, in our decision to try to set ourselves up as gods, to try to believe that we can define what truth is, that we're going to find lasting joy in pursuing our own kingdoms, all of that is in the category of sin. Because there is one God, there is one king, there is one grand plan, and it's not what you and I come up with in our own minds. And anything that deviates from that misses the mark. And we're left in destruction, despair, hopelessness, little glimmers of happiness that fade away with the next circumstance that comes. And in that whole world, God cannot validate and and affirm a world where you or I are a God. If he were to do that, he would be an idolater. He can only pursue his own glory. He's the only glorious one. It's totally appropriate and right for God to seek his glory because he is glorious. And he calls us to see what John did. When he increases and I decrease, that's the place of joy and hope. That's when God doesn't have to bring wrath and condemnation and judgment upon us, but instead welcomes us into that place where he and Jesus and the Holy Spirit have loved each other forever and they invite us to join in that love and to participate. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Love was his motivation. Not coming to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. That's Jesus' whole mission. And he invites you to join your story to his. Today we're going to take communion, and this is a, it's, it's a Sunday to, to remember our risen Savior. It's a week after 
Easter and the resurrection is still alive and well. Our risen Savior is still on the throne. And as we do this, let's remember what we've learned in John's gospel today, that joy comes when he increases and when I decrease, that truth is found only in the one who comes from above, that real life begins today, eternal life, it begins today and it lasts forever because of what Jesus did on the cross. Let's give thanks and then I'll dismiss you to head to these tables here to uh, receive the, the bread and the cup and we'll give thanks together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. You are the only good news. You are true. And we thank you that you are the source of complete joy and eternal life. We thank you that for a world facing your wrath without joy, rebelling, speaking only in earthly ways, you bring the good news that Jesus is Lord. And today we give you thanks and praise. I pray for anyone here today that is struggling uh, with happiness that comes and goes but never grabbing hold of that lasting joy that remains, that today they would taste that rare jewel of contentment found only in you. That like John, they would, they would focus this week on decreasing and allowing you to increase in their life, in their circumstances, in our world. Lord, for anyone today that's struggling to find meaning and purpose, and it feels like it's always two steps forward and one step back, Lord, today, open their eyes to see that you are, you are the only source of real life. Help them to believe so that they can see. We thank you, Lord for your love for us, and for the shed blood of your Son on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it, you do not need to be a member of our church to join us in celebrating communion today. It's open to anyone who is a follower of Jesus. And so whatever church you're from, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to celebrate with us so you can go ahead and, and grab the communion elements and then we'll receive those and give thanks together in just a moment. Well, Paul wrote a letter to a group of churches in the city of Corinth uh, about communion. And really three things that he addresses here in the, in the verses that I'll read in, in 1 Corinthians 11. Number one, this is something we do together. When we break bread and drink the cup, we do this together in remembrance of what Jesus has done. So there's unity that's a part of this, Christian unity. And number two, it's a look back it's a giving thanks. It's a remembering what Jesus did. That we don't just keep living day to day, forgetting about and, and taking for granted the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross for our sins. And then number three, it's a look forward. He is coming back. And communion's a time to remember that he is the king today and he's coming to establish his kingdom. Here's what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember his broken body together today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember the shed blood of our Lord. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord God, we do thank you 
Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for this church. Thank you that we are brothers and sisters together, adopted as sons and daughters of the one true king. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your kingship, your sovereign rule in our lives and in our world. We thank you that we get to be living at the end of time right now today, acknowledging you as our Lord, as the King. And Lord, we look forward to the day of your return. We look forward to when every tongue confesses that you are Lord, when every knee bows before you and acknowledges you as the King that you are. Today, we we thank you for this opportunity to fellowship together with a, a, a pancake breakfast, Lord, that even as we're breaking pancakes together, we're doing this in honor of you and giving thanks to you. We give you thanks and praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I encourage you to, to stick around for uh, some breakfast, and uh, you can, don't forget to grab your kids from kids' ministry. They're probably going to be hungry, too, and, and their teachers will appreciate that. And then it'll be right downstairs in the cafeteria. God bless. <laughs>